0: I'm Melinda Hamilgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And I am honored today to welcome my guest, Ms. Frances Moore LaPay. She is the author or co author of 20 books about world hunger, living democracy, and the environment, beginning with a book that we all know and love Diet for a Small Planet. She published this book in 1971, it has sold 3 million plus copies, and it has changed many lives. She now has a 50th anniversary edition, which was released in the fall of 2021, and that is going to be the topic of our conversation today. Welcome, Frankie.
1: Oh, thank you so much.
0: Well, of course, I have an old tattered version of the first edition of Diet for a Small Planet, and I was thrilled to get a copy of the 50th anniversary. You dedicated this last edition to Betty Ballantyne, who was the publisher of your very first edition. And I loved something that she told you. She said, include recipes to soften your political manifesto. Tell me, how, <laughs> tell me how you received that information.
1: Well, uh, she's a, she knows the publishing world, and she was absolute delight as a human being. She was just, you know, when I first met her, when I picked her up at a hotel where she was staying in Berkeley, she was on her way to meet Paul Ehrlich, who had just written The Population Bomb, and they would published that, which I was reacting against. And I went to pick her up, and I expected this lady in spiked heels and makeup, very New York, you know, a high-powered capitalist publisher. And she walks out in sneakers and cotton trousers with, I think they were flowered or, you know, just very casual, no dyed hair, no makeup. And I just felt for her. And she said, after I fed her lunch and we talked, she said, whoever publishes your book, I will buy it. (laughs) So she was a delightful person. And she did say that she had just seen a booklet that lay out the essential message, but it didn't have any recipes in it. And, yes, her suggestion was that why not recipes just to bring it right into everybody's kitchen. And I said, great idea. And I I called all my friends and said, hey, what's your favorite veggie recipe? And started collecting them. It was really a lot of fun. I I was um, testing them in my kitchen and felt, really excited
0: about it. Well, it really is such a poignant piece of advice. Because through food, we get into people's hearts and minds. And really, what you're writing here is what I would describe a food and democracy manifesto, that we all need right now very badly, at this urgent time in history. And I think one of the things that you say on page eight, you say, to answer the biggest questions, we have to start with the most personal, and that is, mm-hmm. what do we eat? Mm-hmm.
1: Yes. You know, I was pretty lost before I started this journey. I had worked in the war on poverty, and it was so satisfying, and I felt like I was right there at the front lines of fighting poverty, and yet I knew after the woman I most adored in my organizing when she died of poverty was my view she died in her early 40s and i was convinced she didn't die of cancer or heart attack it was but uh, it was really the dress of poverty that killed her and i didn't know how what i was doing really connected to the underlying causes of my friend Lily's death and i was kind of lost like how what do i do where do i go and and then it dawned on me because there was a lot in the air about food at that time And I thought, ah, food, most basic thing of all, if I could just understand why people are hungry in the world, that would give me a direction in life. And I was just so grateful that I had that thought. And my husband was a postdoctoral fellow at Berkeley, and so I had access to the Berkeley Agricultural Library and the friendliest, most helpful librarian who let me just wander from book to book and report to report and put all the figures together and that was the beginning, but it was that first instinct that, yeah, if we can figure out why we have hunger and how to solve that, that would unlock the mystery of economics and politics, and I would have a direction. Yeah, and it did work out that way. And you
0: were really the first person, I think, to connect those two. You know, we were talking about food in a silo, and I think too often we still do. We we have food in a silo, we have economics in a silo, we have health in another one, and agriculture in another And unless we start to understand all of these complex relationships, we really can't solve any of the problems. But I wanted to go way back in your life. You grew up in Fort Worth, Texas, also known as (laughs) Cowtown, and you went from there to Berkeley. That must have been a culture shock.
1: Yeah, well, I, I didn't go directly. I Actually, I... I went to a small Quaker college. Well, my freshman year, I was going to be a diplomat. I went to American University in Washington because I wanted to save the world, and I thought maybe the U.S. State Department was the pathway, but it wasn't. So I then ended up at a small Quaker college, and I then ultimately got married and lived in Philadelphia, and that's when I worked in the War on Poverty. And then I ended up, because my husband got a postdoc in Berkeley, I ended up in Berkeley and. 1968 i think we arrived there so i did have some life experience before landing in berkeley it wasn't a straight line from cowtown to berkeley that would have been maybe even more challenging but i was so happy to be alive when and be at that age when everything was possible and when it felt like we were really asking these huge questions and of course as i write in the new opening chapter At the time, people were really scared that we had hit the Earth's limits, that we'd really run out of resources, because that's what Paul Ehrlich's book, Population Bomb, implied and others. There was Garrett Hardin writing about the lifeboat ethic, and there just wasn't enough, and that came a bit later, but this notion that we really, yeah, we'd overdone it, and I knew people... Personally, who were choosing not to have children because it would be unethical. So that was the environment. It was an environment of fear, mm. of scarcity, and that we had to cut back and some people wouldn't survive. It was terrifying.
0: It's still that way today, I think, and maybe even more so because we've been drummed into our heads this idea that. You know we've got to f- somehow there's going to be these billions of people on the planet, oh my gosh, we need technology to feed the world, and on top of that mm-hmm. we've got climate change and I know young people today who are choosing not to have children because of the climate mm-hmm. issue
1: mhm and I see uh, the difference is that in that world view it I think of it as a worldview focused on limits rather than alignment that I think we've grown to understand that what is wrong is what is killing us and killing life is that we are not aligning with what we know now of nature's laws and certainly that's true in the climate crisis as well as in the food crisis so it's not, it's out of this simple quantity frame and into a frame of relationships that support life and so it's not just this is what my life is focused on how do we break free of the fear of Not enoughness and open our hearts to the idea that if we align our growing and eating and our economic and political systems of what we know of nature and human nature that there is more than enough for all of us and we do not have to boil the planet so that is the big shift from limits to alignment I know that sounds pretty abstract but this idea of why are we creating a world that none of us as individuals would choose that is ultimately the question that began driving my life about 20 years ago, because that seems to be the ultimate question, because no one gets up in the morning and says, yes, I want another child to die of hunger. Nobody gets up and says, yes, how can I contribute to the climate crisis? How can I make it worse? Nobody does that. And yet we are as a people doing this. And so what all of that questioning led me to see that we humans are distinct in a particular way that is destructive, and that is that we see the world through a frame of meaning, and we can't see what is outside of that frame of meaning. And if that is life-serving, all the good. But if it is not, it is where we are now, that we can't see outside of this frame of scarcity, and of competition, and of quantities, and we're trapped. And so all of my work is about helping people shift. I I think of it from the going from the three S's of one worldview of scarcity separation and stasis of things are static things are scarce and separate to a frame of what I call the ecological worldview eco mind which is the frame of connection change everything is changing we're all connected and therefore we're all co-creators together As one German physicist said to me, who I adored, he said, Frankie, in biological systems there are no parts, there are only participants. So that captures the eco-mind view as opposed to the scarcity frame that has got us into this downward spiral that we're in. So I once read that the Hopi Indian, and Plato, said that he who tells a story rules the world, (laughs) right? And that seems true to me. This is the believing is seeing, not seeing as believing, but we see according to our belief system. and what I'm trying to do is shake us up into this very empowering worldview that we're all connected, and therefore everything we do and don't do changes the world, so we have power, we each have power in a connected worldview. Mm-hmm. There's no way that we cannot have power, because we are all affecting the whole moment to moment.
0: I am so glad that you brought up believing is seeing because I wanted to have a conversation about that and the idea of these frames or these cultural narratives that we are fed. And I'm not sure why we're not taught more to question those frames. And I personally like to question who builds those frames for us and why. Do you have any thoughts about that?
1: Well... You know, I'm not a conspiratorialist, but I do, you know, in my next to the most recent book, Daring Democracy, is called, I learned a lot about how we went from a period in this country from one in which we saw ourselves more working in partnership with government. And, you know, when I was in the war on poverty in the 60s, it was such a time of hope that the government was on our side and it was working to reduce poverty and that frame of change is possible, we all have a role to play and we were welcomed in. There was a in the war on poverty, one of the slogans was maximum feasible participation. And so young people like me and others, I mean many ages, were involved and how we went from how did we lose that energy? And one thing and I I, there were so many things changing, but I'll point to one that scholars point to is that after the 60s, the capitalist class or the elite leader, those who control most of the wealth in our society, they got very frightened. And they really believed that this unfettered market that they were benefiting from was the only way that human beings could thrive. And they felt that the challenges of seeing a role for government and participation of citizens in this more you know, more of a social ecology, if you will, that that was very threatening. And so the Chamber of Commerce in 1971, the very year that my first book came out, the Chamber of Commerce hired a Lewis Powell, who was then on the board of tobacco companies, he was a corporate lawyer, and he wrote a memo that became very famous, and anybody listening could easily find it online, just Powell memo, P-O-W-E-L-L memo. And it lays out this Oh, it's just terrified that the capitalist class, just terrified that they were losing power and that they picked on particularly Ralph Nader as a great threat, <laughs> but just all of the energy of the 60s was a threat to the free enterprise system that was the heart of our country. And so they set out then through educational programs uh, at colleges and, and graduate programs in economics and through grade school textbooks and, and their foundations, like the um, Heritage Foundation was founded soon after that, and advertising of all sorts, and lobbying, of course. And during the 70s then, from that memo, through that decade, the number of firms with lobbyists in Washington increased 14-fold.
0: Wow.
1: So I'm not, it's, I hope it, Any listener doesn't hear this as some great conspiracy. But we do have to realize that these frames have articulations that really do then end up affecting a lot of people, especially at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, right? So it was all very public. I mean, I think, at least it is now. I don't know how much people knew at the time about this particular directive from the Chamber of Commerce, but it certainly was taken to heart. And so now we know that there are more than 20 lobbyists for every single person that you and I have voted for, for our Congress, there are 20 lobbyists operating and that something close to 50% of senators turn into lobbyists when they leave their position as representing us. They then go to represent private interests. So it's all the system that is created out of a certain worldview that democracy itself and any notion of the of an economic system that is truly democratic where we do each have a voice and that we're not just living under the choices made by a handful of corporations because corporate power has become so much more concentrated than when I began 50 years ago mm-hmm. so all of that has to be taken into account to understand how we got where we are and how we got to this narrative I like the term that you use, narrative. That believing is seeing that so many people buy that we have the most effective, successful economy in the world, and and we just do not (laughs) in terms of the human outcomes. We do not at all. I mean, our you know I could get into this if you wish. You know how our diet has become a killer. (laughs) You know the nonsense of that. You know what people throughout history, all of our evolution have turned their food into a health threat. And we're the brightest species. Hey, what's up with what that? You know?
0: Right, so. right. Frankie, let me take one break because we're halfway through, and I just need to remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into FoodSooth Radio. We are joined by Frances Mora LaPay. She is the author of 20 books about world hunger, living democracy, and the environment, and we are focused on the very latest one released in fall of 2021, titled Diet for a Small Planet, 50th Anniversary Edition. I want to get back to the food democracy relationship because you are unique in your writing in that you have married those two topics so beautifully. And on page 112, you have a statement that I think bears repeating. You say, we must examine the myth that the essence of democracy is the unbridled freedom of the individual. And I think we are suffering from that myth today. And yet at the same time, as much as you say that in the book, you also provide many examples where people are working cooperatively to create a more democratic food system, one that I like to describe as food sovereignty. But it's a powerful and important comment that I think we need to focus on.
1: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And so democracy, what does it mean and how do I contribute to real democracy, and ours is so flawed. I mean, let me just say, first off, democracy, that people think we have the superior democracy in the world, but actually there are three institutes very distinguished that throughout the world that rank democracies, and we come in, the highest we come in is is something in the order of 30, but in some we rank way below that, (laughs) you know, 50, 60, something like that. And we are not in the top tier in terms of the quality of our democracy. So what I mean by democracy is that we each have voice that is heard. And that is the definition of republic, <laughs> that the people rule, and so that is what our Constitution has guaranteed. It says that the federal government of our country shall guarantee to every state In its nation a republic and that means equal voice for everyone and yet it is just not true because the way we've allowed more than any other certainly any other country we'd like to compare ourselves to we have allowed money to dominate and that the cost of our elections for example the last election doubled it was fourteen point four billion dollars doubled the last national election and So who's paying for that? Those people who are the most wealthy, and that's who then is heard, and that is not democracy. So that is really what is so much at the center of my life right now, that really, how do we live up to our self-image, our self-concept, and make it real for the benefit of us all? And that means that our rights come with responsibilities. That's what democracy means to me. It's It's not just to do what we please, but we are obligated to help to make rules and norms that work for all of us. And we're now, unfortunately, certainly in the food world, we are failing so sadly. And one of the things that I wanted to just get into about the health threat of our diet is that, as I point out, I believe in the new chapter, that our health care spending mostly on diseases that are related to diet now, and every year cost more than $5,000 for each of us, and that the food industry has gotten so sophisticated in engineering its ultra-processed foods to keep us addicted on them, so that 60% of our calories today in the U.S. do not supply nutrition. We're eating calories without nutrition, and that is not freedom that is <laughs> I mean if we lose our health, just think of all the different ways that limits our choices. If we think of freedom having choices in our lives, then that is direct threat to our certainly our health but also just all that we can do. And that is our freedom. so I just want to underscore that, and one of the things I learned after I wrote the new chapter for Diet for Small Planet that the World Health Organization has now deemed processed meat, which is twenty percent of US meat consumption is the process like sausage, is a carcinogen. And that beef itself is a probable carcinogen. And yet that's just not known. And again, that is in a democracy where <laughs> the, the people's interests were foremost and our voices in our our health was centered, we would all know that. And yet, why didn't I, I, you know, I didn't know that until a few months ago, so, and I'm supposed to be an expert, right?
0: Well, you know, if you drill down into some of those multiple page reports, hundreds of page reports on diet and health, and you've got to tease out those little pieces to make it all come together and understand that it's a much larger problem than just the food, which is what you really focus on. You write, food production is largely divorced from human need. And I think we yeah. have to question, why is that?
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's the most, one of the most shocking things, was to realize that our calories that we're producing now worldwide are significantly 20 or more percent more calories For each of us on Earth, and yet one in three of us on Earth do not have access to a healthy diet, or adequate, healthy might be too, but even barely adequate diet, even though our food production per person has grown so much, and that just makes no sense, and the only way it does make sense is to understand that those making the decisions are not the people affected, and therefore it can't be out of a truly democratic system. And I think people sometimes fall for the idea that human beings are not really built for democracy, that we're just not constructed to think of the whole. But I argue, and I, I really love getting old, because I feel like my words, you know, I can look back all these decades now, and it's wonderful. And I, I've learned that human beings have three essential needs beyond the physical, And they are for a need for connection with others, for meaning in our lives, and for a sense of agency, that we matter. And only democracy can meet those basic human needs. So I would argue with anyone that democracy is the only structure of governance that is aligned with humans' deepest needs for connection, for meaning, and for agency or power in our lives. So I think we've got to gain more confidence in our species, You know, I think when things go so bad for us, you know, when you think of all the needless hunger and all the needless deaths, I mean, we rank the highest, you know, our homicide rate is unusually high. Our incarceration high is the worst in the world and all of that. You think, well, humans, you know, we just can't do this. But actually, <laughs> I think that I mean, we haven't chosen a pathway that is truly aligned with our deepest needs. And so it's it's a lot about having confidence in ourselves. And that's why I talk so much in the book about finding a buddy who's going to help us to become more courageous and take risks so that because only if we are doing things that we thought we couldn't do can we believe others can, right? <laughs> and I have a feeling Lily, you're one of those, you know, who's really pushed yourself to do something that you thought you couldn't do and and it's thrilling and so, I talk a lot at the end of the chapter, you know, about transforming fear into pure energy that we can use as we choose. And that's what I'm hoping for myself every day.
0: Mm. Well, you have been described in a New York Times article reviewing this book also as a hope monger. And so, <laughs> yeah. as, you know, as dark as these days may seem for so many, this 50th edition of Diet for a Small Planet. I believe, truly gives us not only hope but critical questions to be asking about where we are and where we want to be and how to get there. You've got eight healing steps, for example, that give us hopeful alternatives. Frankie, we've got to close. I'm going to give you five seconds to give our listeners a charge, and then I'm going to close the show.
1: Okay. Remember this. We don't have to be optimists. We have to become possibilist. That all humans need is to know that their actions count, that there's a possibility that what we do now matters more than ever on earth and we will go for it. So I'm a possibilist.
0: I love that. And I love this new edition. It really is a handbook for moving forward in very troubled times. So in closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemelgarn for KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. But most of all, of course, I need to thank my guest, Francis Moore LaPay, author or co-author of 20 books about world hunger, living democracy, and the environment. And we have been talking about her beautiful 50th anniversary edition of Diet for a Small Planet with, as Betty Ballantyne would approve, many delicious updated recipes. Thank you, Frankie. You're wonderful. Thank you. Thank you.